Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm Kelly Brownell, the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. The Rudd Center website is www.yalerudcenter.org, where you'll find a great number of resources, including a list of the other webcasts that we have. I'm delighted today to welcome Eric Stice. Uh, Eric is on the faculty of the Oregon Research Institute and the University of Oregon and also retains an appointment at the University of Texas where he's taught for a number of years. Uh, Eric was educated at the University of Oregon as an undergraduate at Arizona State for his PhD and then did, did postdoctoral work at Stanford and had a faculty position after that. Eric is one of the leading experts in the world on the development of things like eating disorders and obesity and has done exquisitely good research on a number of very important topics that have taught us not only where these disorders come from, but now he's, he's turned his attention, really unlike anybody else in the field, to how they can be prevented. And so his work is groundbreaking, his work is published in the, in the top journals, and it's a real delight to have him here. So Eric, welcome. Well, thank you very much. So today at the Rudd Center, you did a presentation on food and reward. Uh, an interesting concept that speaks to issues like addiction and what the brain is doing to drive people to eat. Tell us what you mean by food reward, if you would, and why you think the concept is important. Well, we initially got interested in this based on the idea that individuals who uh, experience more reward or uh, greater pleasure from eating may be at greater risk for eating, overeating and gaining weight, um, and that uh, you know, those who uh, show greater anticipatory reward, that is, you know, get more excited about the idea of, of dining at a restaurant or having a dessert or whatever, that that may also set the stage for uh, increased vulnerability to, for, for weight gain. Okay. So what you're saying then is that people vary in how much um, pleasure they get from eating different foods. What does that look like in the brain? What's going on in the brain when people actually eat food that is what you register as reward? Well, it's, um, we really are finding three different um, areas of activation, and I, I'll try to avoid boring brain region part terms. But um, one thing is the hedonic pleasure, the somatosensory pleasure from eating, that when you, you know, eat something like a, you know, a very good uh, candy or something like that, that the process of chewing and, and all that, you know, the lips, tongue, et cetera, gives you some out of sensory reward or hedonic pleasure. And that's one component of it. Um, but there's also the activation of the, um, the pleasure centers of the brain. But essentially, when you um, look at what happens when anybody does any psychoactive drug like cocaine or uh, marijuana um, or even drinks alcohol, it activates uh, a, a certain reward circuitry, and that same reward circuitry is activated when they consume food, that uh, striatum is, is activated and, and limbic uh, regions near that. Um, so we also, you know, we look at the somatosensory reward as well as the dopamine release in that, that reward circuitry. Um, and the anticipation or the um, kind of the, the pleasure somebody thinks they're going to get when they eat um, is reflected in much of that same circuitry, but also a little bit more in the orbital frontal cortex that you see greater activation there. And that's sort of where people learn what in life gives them pleasure so that they can come back and do that again um, yeah, in the future. So it goes without saying, probably, that the brain is reacting differently when a given person eats different foods. So, you know, if I or you have a Godiva chocolate or a wonderful brand of ice cream, our brain will behave differently than if we have, say, Brussels sprouts. 
But it also sounds true that different people will react differently to the same food, that not everybody will respond to a milkshake or french fries or a hamburger or whatever in a similar way. Is that true? And what might be the basis for some of that? Right. Well, there's the, it is true very much. And uh, the research that we're, we're doing now, um, we have a s- series of three different studies where we're comparing uh, lean individuals to overweight individuals and finding that the brain reaction is, is quite different, that the obese individuals show less reaction in the striatum or less um, dopamine release apparently when they you know, we, we study the effects of drinking chocolate milkshake in a brain scanner. Um, but they also show greater activation of the somatosensory cortex, more hedonic reward apparently, and anticipate greater reward so that there are individual differences in these um, that do appear to potentially contribute to obesity. Now, we, it's a cross-sectional study at this point in time, um, but we have just a little bit of data from a prospective study that shows that abnormalities in response to food um, anticipated food, um, both uh, predict weight gain, that, that subjects who show the, the more um, uh, the decreased activation in the striatum in response to food consumption, increased activation in the hippocampus and some of the other regions, uh, gain more weight over time than those who have um, a blunted response in those areas. Um, where they come from, my initial guess would be genetics is that has such a uh, broad impact on neuroarchitecture and neural functioning. Um, and we've begun to look at um, some of the dopamine-related genes, and it turns out they actually interact with food reward so that if you have abnormalities in food reward plus uh, a genes that, that suggest you have less efficient reward circuitry, um, that you're at extra high risk for weight gain over time in the, this study. Um, but I don't know the extent to which genes contribute to individual differences in food reward. That's, uh, to the best of my knowledge, this is a, a brand new field. And, you know, I think what people are doing right now is trying to figure out whether individual differences in food reward predict obesity or weight gain, predict eating problems like bulimia nervosa. And I think once we establish that with replication across labs, usually that's when people start to step back and say, okay, well, where do these individual differences come from? Something that you pointed out in the talk you gave at the Rudd Center this afternoon is that people have hypothesized that individuals with weight problems could be getting less reward from food or could be getting more reward from food. Explain that if you would. Yeah, it's, you know, so far the data are um, painting a very complex and interesting picture, but I would say that from the handful of studies that that we've done and other people have done, um, I think it's very clear that that obese individuals do get less activation, uh, experience less activation of the striatum and the the reward circuitry in response to food, that there, there is a hypofunction reward system. And it's been hypothesized that people overeat in an effort to sort of compensate for this sluggish reward system. And I think that's a very, very compelling model. It's um, honestly, it wasn't, it was in the wrong direction. We had hypothesized quite the opposite when we started this program of research. Um, but the data, we've we found that effect in four different data sets in terms of the diminished activation of the striatum and um, related regions and the, the reward circuitry. So I think that's a very compelling model and uh, is one that has clear treatment implications and uh, prevention implications about maybe altering kind of uh, early feeding practices that may kind of help people avoid this uh, the development of kind of 
diminished kind of reward circuitry in the striatum. Boy, you could see important implications for this just along the lines of what you're saying. Um, if, if this is true, it's possible it might be picked up by an early test. You could find out who's vulnerable and then, of course, counteract that in some pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic way and uh, help people prevent these problems from occurring in the first place. Um, there have been there are a lot of other interesting social and even legal implications of this that I'd like to loop back to toward toward the end of our discussion, but it's really very amazing work. Let's go back to this this difference between anticipatory and consumatory reward. Now, at first glance, you'd expect those two to line up pretty nicely because if somebody is actually getting a reward from something, that is, they're getting pleasure from something, then they should anticipate getting that pleasure and have reward at the anticipatory response before they actually consume the substance. But those two things don't necessarily go together from what I understand from you. Why wouldn't they go together and why is that an important distinction to me? Yeah, this is this grows out of a distinction um, from the substance abuse literature. Uh, Kent Barrage has argued that um, basically as you use substances, so let's go back to say a, a nicotine example, that the first time you smoke a cigarette you get a really big bolus of nicotine and, and feel uh, a euphoria that's a result of that, that that's very high. But when you do that behavior over a you know, multiple year period, your brain response diminishes over time due to receptor down regulation and other factors. Um, this is a tolerance why people have to report using more to get the same effect. But what that says is that the the reward experience from doing the behavior, smoking, goes down over time. So that can't probably explain the maintenance of the behavior. But the anticipated reward, how, how much pleasure you think you'll get from that cigarette, goes up over time. And that probably is more of a key driving factor of perpetuating the behavior. So with regard to food, the idea is how good the food tastes when you eat it, which is consumatory food reward, is important. But in terms of deciding when you're going to eat, how much you're going to eat, and all that, many of those decisions are made not when you're eating the food. And so it's, you know, when you're walking down the aisle in the, the supermarket, what you purchase is influenced much more by anticipatory reward than actually a consumatory reward. And over time, with repeated conditioning, you begin to associate cues that, that co-occur with eating. So say you have a, I'll use a personal example, I love peanut butter cookies, and I would go to a coffee house and have peanut butter cookies all the time. And it got to the point where whenever I go to coffee, I think, oh, well, where's my peanut butter cookie? And it's just because they were conditioned responses. And the more you do that, the more the anticipation is triggered by cues that are, you know, you see a coffee house or you smell coffee or, or what, whatever it is that you associate with that. And those cues create craving for the food. And it's that that we think is probably a key engine for overeating, um, which is why in some of our intervention studies, we're experimenting with the notion of instead of having people cut down with the food they're overeating, to have them not eat that food at all, completely eliminate it, which flies in the face of a, a lot of conventional lore, um, but it may be a very effective way in reducing cravings that are sort of the engine behind overeating. Because even if you're having things periodically from that point of view, you'd be firing up this system repeatedly over time that wouldn't extinguish and therefore you'd have continued problems. Right, right. And again, you know, the, the substance abuse literature has made wonderful advances in this regard that they find that relapse, uh, you know, for people who are opioid addicts or whatever often occurs, you know, you get them into treatment and they, you know, are 
they, they, they get clean and they have no, no other drug in their system. They don't have tolerance or any of the withdrawal symptoms left over. But they go back into the regular environment and they see cues that were associated with where they would buy heroin or whatever it would be. And that is when you get these really strong, potent craving responses and then, then they'd relapse because of that. All right. So let's take what you've talked about with substance abuse and see if we can apply it in more general terms to food. So what you're saying is that let's say somebody goes to a fast food place and has a, has a meal and they do this repeatedly over a long time of, you know, a double cheeseburger, French fries, and a milkshake or something. Then um, if what holds true in the other uh, areas of substance abuse holds true here, the actual pleasure that somebody receives from that food should decline somewhat over time, but the pleasure that they anticipate receiving will go up. And these cues associated with that, like let's say they're driving in a certain place or it's a certain time of day or whatever it happens to be, could trigger these, these very high anticipatory rewards. Now, I'm assuming that in the context of that phenomenon that advertisements of foods might very well be able to trigger this anticipatory response and kick the system into high gear. And so if that's I'd be curious to see whether you think that's at least a possibility. And if it was, then it would suggest that there's something biological occurring in addition to whatever is going on out there in the environment that leads people seeing advertisements to actually consuming the foods. Yeah, no, I know. I would venture a lot of money on that hypothesis being cracked that I think that, you know, the, the mass media has done a very good job of associating, you know, logos and, and other images with their products and that um, even to the extent of, you know, other cues that are in addition to that, if you're walking down the street and you smell French fries, smell uh, coming out of a fast food place, that I think that those do trigger this anticipatory reward phenomena that we see in our F, uh, the, the brain imaging uh, research that we're doing, that you really get you know a, a potent response, and that there's probably individual differences that some people are much more easily conditioned, as it were, to experiencing craving you know for fast foods or whatever else that's advertised. Um, so I think that's a, a very likely. Uh, very probably correct uh, in terms of the, the, the hypothesis, um, in terms of, you know, cueing anticipatory reward and kind of food cravings. Well, you could imagine how the, the landscape of thinking about food and obesity could change if these things are proven to be true and this issue of food reward gets studied in even more detail than it is. I mean, imagine, for example, the legality or even the morality of marketing these kind of foods to children. Mm -hmm. um, th you know, think about how parents would feel if they find that this combination of eating these foods and being exposed to the advertisements for them has set up this biological process in their children that it is very hard to break free from. I mean, it could really change the landscape a lot. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a clear direction that we should be pursuing to kind of look at, you know, at what age uh, we see evidence of this conditioning and, um you know, the different forms that it takes uh, in terms of other, you know, unhealthy foods that people are promoted to eat, especially, you know, we do know clearly that people overeat, um, people typically overeat when they watch television versus not watching television. So they, they will kind of eat mindlessly, et cetera. And I think, you know, there's uh, just a number of images that occur in any given hour that are going to be triggering particular foods that the, the person would probably overeat that aren't particularly healthy. So, um, so not only does it point in that direction, but I think it also is a potential avenue of promoting more healthy food alternatives that you could um, think about whether you could use mass media to kind of promote more, you know, fruit and vegetable intake, for example, um, which 
and certainly in my experience, I haven't seen a lot of advertisements for fruit and vegetables on TV at all. There aren't many. You're right about that. Well, I'm going to ask you to speculate something, and I know for somebody who's as a fine scientist as you are that speculation may not be the thing you enjoy doing the most, but let me push you a little bit on this. Um, last summer, we held a meeting at Yale on food and addiction, and uh, we were interested in doing this for a number of reasons, and we brought together scientists who uh, studied classic addiction, um, you know, uh, for, for things like heroin and alcohol and tobacco and things, and then people from the nutrition and public health arena. And it was very interesting to see them come together. And what got me interested in this initially was just what our patients would tell us. You know, we've been running a clinic for years and years, and not everybody in the clinic uses the language of addiction to describe their experiences, but many do. So the, top, the word craving comes up a lot, and people behave in ways as if they're going after a classic addictive substance. So it was amazing to me that Phil hasn't paid attention to this until recently, but thank goodness the attention is finally occurring. So here's where I'd like you to speculate. Uh, do you think food can be addictive? Um, do you think people can respond in biological and psychological ways similarly with food than they might with other classic substances of addiction? Yeah, I, I certainly you know have patients that have struggled with this very well, uh, very much indeed, and I think that's the the notion that really got us interested in this is just sort of watching how hard people struggle with eliminating unhealthy foods from their diets, and uh, it's not at all uncommon for us to you know have a uh, participants say, oh, I'm going to stop drinking, uh, you know, any soda. And they try and they come back two weeks later and they say, I can't do it. I got to go back. So it has all the hallmarks. And I, I actually used to do a lot of addiction treatment uh, clinically early in my career. So I think the hallmarks there and at some level, it shouldn't be a surprise because what all sub psychoactive substances do is they hijack the reward circuitry that has evolved over time to reinforce eating and sex in humans. So that's already using the same neural pathways that food, you know, has been activating for millennia. So I think that it, it shouldn't be any surprise at all. I, I think that the, the one part that I get a little bit, the, the, the addiction analogy is a little bit tricky, is the idea of tolerance and pharmacologic um, addiction, that when you do cocaine on a regular basis, you, your brain gets used to having the excess dopamine from the, the, the cocaine in there all the time, and, and it changes in response to reach your homeostasis with the dif differential dopamine load. And I think that process would be greatly muted with regard to food. I, I think there's probably some small parallels, but that particular aspect of addiction probably isn't there, but all the rest of it lines up. It's interesting, we, at this meeting, one of the things that we brought up at this meeting, actually informally, because I talked to several of the investigators there, was this concept of tolerance and do people develop tolerance for certain foods. And I said, if you look at, at uh, tolerance for drugs and animal studies, and then you took uh, animal feeding studies where they're giving animals a high sugar or high fat diet or something, mm -hmm. would those curves look, look alike? And um, several people, and no, nobody really thought of it so much in those kind of terms, but they said, yes, the curves would look very similar. Mm -hmm. And it might suggest there is some possibility of tolerance going on. And certainly it's um, consistent with some of the data we see in humans because, you know, when people start off enjoying some kind of food or class of foods, it seems like over time they end up taking in a lot more of them than they did in the beginning. And that would suggest that maybe there is a, 
a biological basis for that. Yeah, I think that's very, very likely. And um, Len Epstein uh, and I have been conversing about this very, very topic. And he's been arguing that there is um, actually some very interesting evidence of sensitization, which is sort of the the notion that the same dose of, you know, say marijuana that you smoke, that over time you get more of an effect from less of a dose. Um, and I don't honestly understand the pharmacological notion behind that. Um, it's probably an efficiency aspect of the receptors. Um, but he has argued that there's some very nice parallel evidence between sensi uh, sensitization to food is, is, that's very similar to what you see in terms of drugs of, of abuse. You know, I, I'd, I'd like to go on and on because this is such an interesting conversation, but let me end with the following question. Uh, from what I gather from drug studies in animals or humans, that if, if a drug or an animal or human has been on a particular drug and then they stop the drug and then they go back to it or they're given access to it again, that they're going to behave much differently than an animal that never had the drug getting it for the first time, even the same drug in the same amount under the same conditions. Is that a correct assumption? And how do you think that might apply to people going on and off diets, let's say, or people stopping eating food and then because of the environment pushing them back to it, they start it up again? And what sort of parallels might there be there, do you believe? Yeah, and there's actually some very interesting data from animal studies that have, have, have exactly found that, that the um, reinstatement of habits, uh, you get this, I actually forget the terms, but you get um, <clears throat> a much uh, greater rebound in kind of consumption of, of sugar in the, these particular studies for animals that had been sort of used to intermittent kind of binge access to sugar. Um, so I think that that, the implication is certainly that for people who kind of oscillate on and off of diets that the return to the um, you know, eating these high-fat, high-sugar foods is going to be very different kind of post trying to kind of cut it out and trying to, to um, not eat this stuff, which I think clinically, um, pretty sure there's nobody who would argue that these transitory kind of diets where you kind of go on a diet to fit in a prom dress or, you know, swimsuit, spring break, are good at all. And I think, you know, we've actually um, done a lot of studies that have found that that is maladaptive and that if you're going to have any behavior change, it needs to be just a permanent one. That if you decide to not eat your Godiva chocolates, you just not eat your Godiva chocolates and mm. um, don't come back. Um, but that's a hard thing for most humans to do, especially given individual differences in food reward. I think that's remarkably easy for some individuals and remarkably hard for a lot of others. I promise that that would be my last question, but I can't help myself. And I'd love to get you to speculate on one other thing. When you were talking, you were rem reminding me of this old drug work that was done, and I may be remembering it incorrectly, so please, you know, fill me in if I'm wrong. But I was wondering if it didn't have some application to the topics we're talking about. It's my understanding that, that people who die of drug overdoses typically are not dying because they're taking more of the drug, but they're taking the same amount of drug in novel circumstances. And uh, there was a researcher in Canada, Shep Siegel, I believe his name was, that did these amazing studies where he would get animals on a, a, an addictive drug um, and then simply put them in a different cage, give them the same amount of drug that they were tolerating just fine, and it would kill them. And mm -hmm. the speculation was that because these drugs produce such powerful physical 
effects that the, the, the organism learns that the drug is about to come in from the cues in the environment and they set up this compensatory biological response. So that if you're taking in a drug, say, that pushes your heart rate up to a high level, the cues of taking the drug might get, lead you to drop your heart rate in anticipation of having the drug come in. And, all, and that anticip this anticipation and the conditioning is adaptive if the circumstances line up. But if you get the drug under circumstances where you're not anticipating it and you don't have that compensatory response kick in, it could be highly dangerous. Now, I'm not sure I'm, I'm remembering that correctly, but so please let me know if I am. But if I am remembering that correctly, do you think there may be anything like this going on with food? Could it be that the anticipation of having food is setting up some sort of compensatory response to whatever biological impact that food provokes? And that that has some implications for the way we think about food conditioning and things like addiction. Yeah, no, I, well, first off, my understanding of that literature is uh, spot on with yours. And that's uh, the, the opponent process theory is what I think people have talked about that, you know, if you usually do a gram of cocaine um, and, and your you know, body's used to that and there's all the cues that your body anticipates that and, and downregulates so that you come back to homeostasis when you do the drug. So if you do it in an un, a novel environment or a novel time, um, it has a very different effect. So if you normally drink a coffee, your coffee at, at 9 o'clock in the morning every day and you don't drink it, you're going to feel very sluggish. You're going to be missing that coffee, and that's the opponent process. Um, with regard to applying it to food, I, I think there is some very interesting data coming out with cephalic phase response, which is just sort of your body ramping up to start to digest food. And it would be um, not outside of the possibility that there's cephalic phase responses that are differential across people based on their eating. That, that if somebody normally, I, you know, I was relating that, you know, I usually don't drink soda, but if I drink soda, it sort of wipes me out because there's such a sugar release that it caused me to need to take a nap after I drink too much of it, um, that I think if I normally did that on a regular basis, you'd have a cephalic phase response that, that anticipated that, yeah, you're going to get uh, a large load of simple carbohydrates, and how are you going to respond to that, and what, what is that going to do to your blood level, blood sugar level, et cetera. So I, I would say that's a, an excellent direction for future research, and there's some really neat novel paradigms that um, they've come up with to, to study cephalic phase response that are very objective, and you could look at whether there's individual differences. Um, and I'm, I certainly have not seen that in the literature, but I think that's a, a very fruitful direction to go. Well, what it reminds me of are some recent data on artificial sweeteners on obesity. And there, some people have, I mean, there's this positive relationship between consuming a lot of artificial sweeteners and being overweight. Right. And of course, you don't know what's driving what. And it could be that the reason people are consuming so much is because of their overweight. But there's also the possibility that these sweeteners are cranking up the appetitive process somehow. And one uh, bit of speculation I've heard that I find pretty compelling is that when you're taking in something very sweet and the cues surrounding it, that your body is going to have some anticipatory response. And then if the actual calories or the actual sweetness doesn't get delivered because it's an artificial form that's mm -hmm. calorie free, that the body is not in homeostasis. It wants to restore homeostasis because of the compensatory response that gets kicked in from starting, you know, from the bottle or the can or whatever it happens to be, but that doesn't have a chance to occur and that that might leave this lingering need for more sugar 
mm-hmm. that people might consume in other parts of their diet then to restore the homeostasis. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. In fact, it's uh, several things are coming together in my mind. That yeah, I, th- I think it makes ver- uh, a great degree of sense. And there's, you know, the the brain activation and response to you know as, as you eat rewarding food and start to associate cues with that, your brain is encoding that and saying that when I see a, a soda can that's your favorite soda, whatever you you start to anticipate anticipate that as a reward that's about to happen, and that that's encoded in a specific region of the brain, and you can you know really watch that change over time. And and I would be, I, I think the false signals that occur with artificial sweeteners is sort of taking you know you have a biological system that allows you to figure out what's rewarding and what's not rewarding, so you can avoid things that result in pain and suffering and go for things that make you. Uh, make you experience reward and pleasure. Um, But if you're sort of false labeling that by, you know, saying it tastes like sugar, but it's not simple carbs, um, I think that's that's a great way of discoupling some of the kind of the biological processes that we were born with that help us eat the right amount of food and help uh, set people up to struggle with not eating the right amount of food. So I think that's a very reasonable assertion. Well, Eric, this is fascinating, and I wish we could go on a lot more time. Uh, but I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Eric Stice from the Oregon Research Institute, um, a highly prolific scientist who studied eating disorders, obesity, and a number of their variants, um, and has shared today some of his work on food and reward. So, Eric, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'd like to remind our listeners again that our website for the Rudd Center, www.yalerudcenter.org, has a list of the other webcasts that we've done, uh, which you can listen to on your computer can download to your iPod through iTunes. So thank you again, and uh, until next time.